You are listening to sermon audio from Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out online at www.cogginchurch.org. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody. Where are my Aggies at? We in here? All right, we got a few. Awesome, awesome, great. I had a I had a couple of guys who at the door that said, if I don't say anything, that uh, things may not go my way here today. So I just want to get that out there. All right, hey, if you got a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be at today as we continue our series uh, in Galatians on becoming uh, gospel, uh, gospel people. Um, you know, in my, my own, I'm from Saginaw, Texas is where I was born and raised up until about 94. Then we moved just north of there, kind of in Haslett area. It's considered North Fort Worth. But uh, Saginaw has this festival they do every year. It's called the, the Train and Grain Festival because Saginaw is known for these like giant grain elevators that I think at one time were like the largest grain elevators um, in the world. And so I remember as like, a, I was probably at this time, maybe in sixth grade, maybe fifth grade, can't remember, but I told my mom, it was on a Friday, I said, hey, uh, would you take me and my best friend Brandon, would you take us to the Training Grain Festival on Saturday? And she said, sure. I was like, all right. I said, well, can I also go stay the night with Brandon tonight? And she said, she pulled the, the parent, just the mom, you can pick one or the other. You can't do both. It's like, really? You're trying to ruin my fun here. She's like, yeah, you can only do one or the other. So me thinking, just, okay, instant gratification. I'm going to Brandon's house tonight, and then tomorrow I'm just begging mom until she gets so annoyed with me that she'll take me. And so I go stay the night at Brandon's house, and that next morning I'm, I'm making the call. Hey, mom, you come and take me and Brandon to, to the training grain festival. And she said, absolutely not. She's like, I gave you a, an ultimatum yesterday. You could do this or you could stay at his house or you could go to the festival. And you chose and you chose to go stay at, at Brandon's. I was like, well, and I just kept going. And I was like, mom, you can't do this. This only happens one time a year. And I'm begging and I'm pleading. I'm making my case. I'm, I even got, I'm going to tears. That's, what, that's the mode I got into to try to get her to change her mind. And she's like, no, it, I told you if you choose this, this is what's going to happen. And you chose to go to Brands, And so you, you can't go. And I was, <laughs> I was absolutely devastated. I thought she was bold. She didn't. She stood her, she stood her ground. And, uh, you know, you probably got someone like that in your life that just sticks to their word. You just know, hey, if they say it, they're just not going to go back on it. And, uh, and this is kind of the, the, the emphasis that Paul's like bringing to the text today is like, yo, when, when God says something, like when he makes a promise, like he doesn't go back on it. You can try to make up what you want. You can try to change it. You can try to do your own thing, but it doesn't matter because God doesn't change his mind, uh, specifically on the promises that he gives, uh, to mankind. And so last week, uh, Chris kind of went through and we learned about that a relationship with God has always been about faith. Even in the Old Testament, even with the law, a relationship with God has always been based on faith. And that was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis uh, 15. And so to summarize what Paul says is he says that, hey, all of this life change, what he said in, in, in the previous message, all of this life change has been happening has it been happening by your doing or the Spirit of God? And he says that the people of God are blessed and they are not cursed. But people of law, they are under a curse. And so what Paul does today through the remainder of chapter 3 and then kind of going into chapter 4 is he gives us an illustration and kind of takes a little bit deeper dive uh, to what he's talking about. And it's really like this, this the verses we're going to read today, this is like pretty thick and dense and like 
deep theology. And so I'm going to try my best not to get stuck in the weeds and make sure we're not here for an hour. Uh, I promise you we won't do that because I get tired of listening to myself once I get past 30 minutes. So, um, but let's get going on verse 15 here. We're going to jump in. So Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul is posturing. He says we have the Abrahamic covenant, and then we have the Mosaic covenant. And what he's, he's kind of saying like, hey, just because this Mosaic covenant has come 400 and something years later doesn't mean that Abraham's covenant is, is no longer valid. He says, in fact, he says to give a human example, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls, adds, once it has been ratified. So if two people make a promise, they make a covenant, they sign on the contract, once it's set, it's set. It's, it's done. And so he's saying that's the same thing with God's promise to Abraham, that just because there's another covenant later on doesn't mean that, that the covenant with Abraham is done. That's not, it doesn't, it means it's, doesn't mean it's null, doesn't mean it goes away. And so that's kind of what he's getting across here is just because there is this mosaic law put in place doesn't mean that God's covenant with Abraham goes away. Now he continues on in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make it void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. Excuse me. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So there's two words uh, we're going to use a lot today, and I want to make sure you get a proper definition of it as we continue on uh, in this message. But the two words is you're going to hear promise or promises uh, a lot. And here's what it refers to. It refers to the Abrahamic covenant that we see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where God promises Abraham three things, land, family, and that his offspring, singular, would be a blessing to the nations. Primarily, when Paul uses the word promise, he's talking about that, that third promise that he gave Abraham, which was that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. Uh, so that's what we say when I'm saying promises or promise. That's what I'm talking about. That way I don't have to say Abrahamic covenant over and over and over. And then we have the other one term is the law. That's going to be used a lot in this passage. Uh, the law, this refers to the Mosaic covenant God made with Moses. And what this did is this distributed blessings and curses based on obedience to the commandments of God. So we have promises, that equals the Abrahamic covenant. We have law, that equals the Mosaic covenant. So the first thing he says here, says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is, who is Christ. And so when God made all those promises to Abraham, it was to his offspring, or some of your translations would say seed. Uh, Paul is making a point that the offspring or the seed is singular, it's not plural, meaning that this Abrahamic blessing, these promises, would come to and through a person, not necessarily a bunch of people. So which Paul says that this offspring that is alluded to, we see in Genesis 12 and we see in Genesis 15, he's saying that, he's, Paul is interpreting that passage for us and saying that offspring is actually Jesus. 
So the point that he's getting across is that this, that this promise wasn't to seeds. It wasn't to plural. It wasn't to offsprings. There's not a bunch of different families. There's one seed, therefore there is one family. Okay, so to kind of get this passage, we've got to take a step back for a second and, and realize what God is doing through Abraham is you have people scattered all over the earth. And you have what God is doing through Abraham is he has a, is he's putting, a, he's giving him a promise that there is one person who is Jesus and that, and there's going to be one day that he's going to come to fruition, that he is going to come down to earth, that he's going to die on a cross, that he's going to resurrect, that he's going to ascend to heaven, and that through faith in him, that we can all be one family together, regardless of ethnicities, regardless of cultural backgrounds, regardless of all of those things, we will one day all be of the same Family. It's not like God's not creating a bunch of different families. He's creating one family of God through, through Abraham. And it says in verse 17, and this is what I mean, that the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul that. It does not annul that promise that he gave to, to Abraham that was previously ratified by God so as to make this promise uh, void. So even after the law had been established, 430 430 years later, it did not do away with the promise that God would bless the nations through the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus, therefore creating one family. You're kind of like, why is, Moses, or why, is, uh, why is Paul sharing all this? Well, remember, there you have Judaizers coming into uh, the church, and they're teaching that they need to adhere to the law, and Paul's got to give them a, little, like a, a theology lesson that, hey, your theology is whack. Like, it doesn't make sense, okay? So let me put your theology, let me correct it real quick. So he's saying, there's Abraham. He has an offspring that's going to bless all nations, create one family, and the Mosaic law did not annul that. It didn't do away with that. It's not like the there's a new one, so we do away with the old one. That's not how this works. And he goes on in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So it says he uses the word inheritance there, and, and, and this is really important to note that uh, the law doesn't give you an inheritance. That's not its function. That's not what it was ever meant to do. Um, in fact, the only thing the law can give is a simple human being is a curse. And Paul's explained that actually in Chris's message last week was that, that in the, in, when we live under the promises of God, we, we are free from the curse. But if we say, hey, we need to keep the law, well, you got to realize the law puts a curse on you and you can't get out of it. So the inheritance, this inheritance to be in the family of God, you can't get there by adhering to the law because all you do is you end up cursed and not blessed. This is what the point that Paul is getting across here. So think about this. The, the inheritance doesn't come because of what you have done, but it comes because of who you are. And in the Old Testament times, this was the firstborn son. And so therefore, our inheritance as a member of the family of God doesn't come based on what we do, but, it because, but of who we are by faith in Christ. So God doesn't allow us entrance into his family and receive the inheritance of being in his family because we've done all the right things. God gives us entrance into his family because his son did all the right things and we have faith in him, which he was the promise that Abraham had. And so again, Paul is pushing this point that God, what God was doing through Abraham was he was establishing one family of God in which all who call upon the name of Jesus would be saved and enter that family and receive that inheritance as a child of God. Y'all confused yet? I'll, I'll keep going. Here we go. Why then the law? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Hey, just so I know, I appreciate you guys because y'all, y'all laugh at me. The second service, they just look at me when I try to make funny comments. So uh, it's very affirming. I appreciate that. Um, it really, really helps. It really does. Uh, so, you know, then it begs the question, okay, then, then why was the law, if God makes this promise to Abraham, he's going to bless the nations, he's going to do it through Jesus by all who put their faith in him, then why was the law even necessary in the first place? He explains very simply, it was added because of transgressions. Transgressions means we've, God has a command and we have sinned against him, and so that's why. It's because sin has entered the world. So it was a system put in place because of the sinfulness of humanity. But what this passage says, it was only there until that offspring, Jesus, would, uh, would come. So it's temporary in nature, and that it is only in place until Jesus uh, would arrive. And so you could say that what this system, this law that God put in place, uh, was put in place to lead us to the promise of Abraham. It says that. So, hey, it was added because of transgressions or sins, until what? The offspring, Jesus, would come to whom the promise had been made. So it was the idea that it was carrying us. It was the vehicle that was carrying us and pointing us to the promise of Jesus Christ being fulfilled in Abraham's covenant. So he says that the very, he goes, he continues on. He said, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And so kind of Paul's point here in verse latter point of uh, part of verse 19 and 20 is that the promise to Abraham came really directly from from God, not through angels nor by any means of a mere human mediator such as Moses. So it's kind of what Paul's doing is setting a higher priority on the Abrahamic covenant rather than the Mosaic covenant. And so as we look at both of these, these two, the promise, and we look at the law, it, it seems like they can be contradictory of each other, maybe not even function uh, together, but Paul kind of shores that up in, in verse 21. He says this, is, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is it against it? Certainly not. Paul uses a very strong word here when he says certainly not. It really conveys the idea of shock or horror. He's like, no, 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 no. The law is good. It is not contrary to the promises of God. It is good. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he makes this point that the law was never intended to give us life. It was never intended us to lead us to a life of fulfillment and of purpose and of joy and of peace and all those things that relationship with Jesus gives us. It was never intended to bring life or to showcase our righteousness. In fact, it actually does quite the opposite. It says the scripture or the law, it, it imprisons us. It, the word imprison there, it means to catch. It's like they use the same word in, in the Hebrew to, uh, or to the Greek to catch fish. Or to restrict something. So kind of the imagery it gives us is because of our sin, the law catches us and it binds us and there's no escaping. So it it, it condemns all of humanity under sin and it traps us in a prison of sin, a prison of condemnation. And really what it does is it leaves us with all of us without an excuse saying, I'm a sinner and there is no way out of this. I am condemned in sin, I am imprisoned to sin, and there's nothing I can do to to uphold this all. There's nothing I can do to get out of this 
sin prison. So what we see happening here is the law puts us in a prison of sin so that we can then be freed by faith in Jesus to be a part of the family of God. That's what it says in verse 22, the scripture, it imprisoned everything so that the promise by faith might be given to those who believe. If we didn't know we're sinners, we wouldn't know we needed a savior. And so what the law does is it evens the playing field for all humanity, past, present, and future, that you need a savior. You need to be freed from your sin, which ultimately is what God promised in Abraham that we receive in Jesus, that he frees us from that, all who believe in him. Verse 23, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So we kind of, Paul paints a a more clear picture for us to understand how the law functions. Uh, in our lives. The first thing he says, it was, we were held captive. So it was like a prison guard that we were stuck in a prison of sin. And there was a guard watching us and he didn't let us go out. He didn't let us leave that. He made sure that we stayed in prison under uh, sin. So it was like being locked up and the law was our kind of guard. The second term he uses is, is guardian in verse 24. It says the law was our guardian until Christ came. Uh, that actually, that word guardian doesn't really fully express the true meaning of, of that word. There was, uh, for, for wealthier families in Jewish culture, there was a, a type of slave that was basically just was with a, 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 your children, and it really had a more of a disciplinary function, making sure they were doing the things they were supposed to do. And so they always had this kind of like making sure they were doing things the right way and going to the right things. And, and they had this like disciplinary type function to them. And so he paints this picture as what the law did is it condemned us and guarded us, and it was kind of disciplining us in the way of righteousness. It was showing us what was right. So why did it function in this way? It says here that so our justification before God would be based on faith and not works. Because what the law shows us is there is nothing we can do to be in a right standing with God in our own power. There's not a single thing we can say. There's not a single act. There's not enough good things we can do or or anything like that that would allow us to be pleasing to God on our own basis. And that's that's what it does. It was our guardian until Christ would finally come and free us in order that we would be justified. We would be made right before God. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So now that faith is here, that Jesus has come, he's died, he's been resurrected, he's ascended uh, to the right hand of the Father, we are no longer under a guardian. That we are now sons of God and receive our inheritance from him uh, by faith in, in Jesus Christ. So what the law did is it was kind of this babysitter of sorts. It was a guard. It was a, a tutor. It was all these things that kind of watched over us till, till dad got home. And so dad could say, hey, I'm going to now free you under this discipline. I'm going to free you from this prison, and you're now with me. And, and you're not just hanging with me, but I'm actually going to give you an inheritance that you get to be in my family. You have all the privileges of a firstborn son. So what does this mean for, for us? And here's what Paul says as he continues on in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So he's kind of landing the plane here. And he's, you know, Paul says here, he says, you are all sons of God. Now, sometimes in the scriptures, you'll see when it says sons of God, that can be gender neutral. That can go for men or women. But really, this is specifically uh, talking about uh, a male. And here's why, because he's, he's talking about the son of God as being the firstborn son. So like in Jewish culture, if you're the firstborn son, you've got all the inheritance. You've got everything from the family. And so what he's saying is like, if you're in Christ, whether you're a male or whether you're a female, you are sons of God, meaning that you get the full privileges of the firstborn son, regardless of firstborn, regardless of second, regardless of gender. That when we come to faith in Christ, that we have the inheritance, we have the privilege of a firstborn son through our faith in, in Jesus. And so that's a very significant. He says, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have, have put on Christ. So he's talking about baptism. It's a symbol of salvation. Therefore, he's saying if you have been saved and you have received Christ or you have put him on, which means that everything that is his is now yours. And so here we were condemned under the law, condemned under sin and with this guardian. And then Christ comes and he frees us under uh, and frees us out of this prison of sin and this curse. Why? Becoming the curse for us that we learned last week. And then he brings us into the family and he says, all that is mine is now yours. And you have the full inheritance of a firstborn son, regardless of who you are. And it's a huge, that's a huge statement to make. And so now that you are in Christ, there's no differing value system based on your ethnicity, your socioeconomic value, or your gender. He says, verse 28, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to promise. We are all of the same value in the same family because you are the offspring of Abraham. You have received the blessing that God promised to him through Jesus, and now you're all part of the family of God as one. That's the point that Paul is pushing across to these Galatians. He's saying these Judaizers that are coming in and they're teaching to you to abide by the law, what they're doing is they're creating factions. They're creating disunity. They're creating division. They're creating families. And I want you to know, guys, that Abraham, through, when God promised Abraham, he said one family. There's one offspring that the seed, and it'll make all of us of the same family. And it doesn't matter our skin color. It doesn't matter the way we vote. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. If you place your faith in Christ, we are now all of one family, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, whatever. It doesn't matter. So this has massive implications because I imagine Paul was thinking back. Remember chapter 2 of Galatians when the circumcision party walked in. There were two families. It was us and them. It was Gentiles and circumcision party. But the argument Paul is getting across here is that the promise of God to Abraham is one family, one offsprings, not offsprings. That through Jesus, we are all one and the same. We all have the same value. We all have the same inheritance. And finally, Paul lands the plane here with, as he talks about who we are as as children of God. He says this, he said, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul says, just like a a kid whose parents give him an inheritance, he doesn't receive that as a child. But he has to wait. And that one day he will receive it, or she will receive it when they they come of age. And, and likewise, when we too, he says here, when we were enslaved, we were to sin, we were divorced from our inheritance as God's children, that we, we were under condemnation, we were under a curse. Why? Because it says here, we were following the elementary principles of this world. You know, we were enslaved to the elementary principle of this world. Paul is using this term to say that we were enslaved to beliefs that were contrary to the gospel, contrary to the the promises of, of God, and they held us in so that we couldn't get out, that we were condemned, we were cursed under the law. But God, when he was, when he was good and when he was ready, sent his only son, Jesus, this is born of a woman, completely human, born under the law, under the same demands as you and me, so that by his righteousness, by his death, by his resurrection, that he could buy us out of this sin slavery that we were in, and we could become children of God. We could receive the inheritance that God has planned for us. So when Christ came, he said, Guardian, I've got it from here. He took us by the hand and he brought us out into his family. And now that we are family, it says God has put the spirit of his son, the Holy Spirit inside you and me so that our hearts can cry, Abba, Father, we are finally freed from out from under the law. and We are free to be and enjoy the inheritance that God gives us as his child, as the firstborn status in his family. So I know some of the details and the, the covenants of this might be overwhelming and trying to explain them in 30 minutes is, a, is quite the feat. But, but here's the point, kind of the big picture Paul's getting across here is that when God visited Abraham, he was preparing to save the whole world. And when God visited with Moses, he was preparing to condemn the whole world. What Moses gives you is a law you cannot keep, therefore it condemns us under sin. However, all it was doing was preparing you, preparing me to see ourselves how we really are, and that's just a sinner, enslaved to sin, and there's no way out. So that we might accept the promise of Abraham, that's Jesus Christ, by faith and be put into a new family, the family of God, becoming one with a bunch of people who aren't even like each other. Paul's getting across is, is, guys, don't let this false theology come in and begin to divide you. Don't think that there is freedom in the law. Don't think there is sonship or daughtership under the law because the only thing the law does is leave you cursed and condemned. And when you do that, you're nullifying what Jesus did on your behalf, that he came and fulfilled the law for you. He came and was cursed for you so that you might have freedom as a son and daughter of the Father with a full inheritance. And so that that would bring unity to us as a family of God together. So here's my point for today. And it says that gospel people are united. Gospel people are united. You know, over the last two weeks, we've discussed this 
Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Why did Paul just want to give us a history lesson, show us how smart he is? No, it's, it's because there was an issue at hand that a false gospel began to divide this church. A false theology began to permeate their relationships. It began to, to affect those who are socially, ethnically, and economically different from them. It caused Peter, it caused Barnabas, it caused some of the Jews to begin to divide and walk away from this gospel table. And it was causing Galatian Christians to walk away from the gospel. And this false theology was creating families. It was built on division rather than one united family under the banner of Jesus. So Paul gives a history lesson of sorts to kind of drill down to the bottom of the line. The point of the blessing of Abraham is that God would bring everyone into the same family. And that the law established by Moses was meant to guide us to be in that one family, not create a bunch of different ones. So friends, here's, here's some application for you today from this passage is this, is that you need to know that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you are a child of God, fully loved, adored, and accepted by Him. And there's nothing you can do about it, even if you don't want to be. That's the case. It's the truth. Because God doesn't go back on His promises. He doesn't go back on His works. We talked about it at the very uh, beginning. That God loves you so much, He placed the Spirit of His Son in you. And so you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a child of God, and you're a part of one family, that you can rest your head on the pillow at night knowing that you're fully loved, accepted, adored, and received full inheritance from God. The second thing is this, is that in the chaos that is the United States of America, there is a lot to be divided about. Tons. I mean, in every corner, there's something uh, to be divided uh, about, and everything around us pushes us towards division, trying to unseat us from this united gospel table, the politics, COVID, preferences, all these things seek to divide the family of God. And we, as God's people, have to fight for unity among each other. We cannot afford division. We have to fight. And God says that we are all one family under Abraham. And friends, there is one thing that we can be united about, regardless of any of these other secondary things, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the blessing of Abraham, God pictured a united people of all ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, political stances, united under the banner as his children. So, so let me ask you this question, these three questions here. Is there a place in your life where you're allowing maybe secondary issues to create boundaries and even ill thoughts towards brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there anything like that? And I understand that there are going to be differences, and there's going to be differences that we have that we're really passionate about. But friends, the, God has sent His Holy Spirit in you to, to fight for unity among the body of Christ and among each other. And so there's secondary things that we just need to repent of and say, Lord, I know this really bothers me, but I know what you want more than anything is for us to be united. And as long as it's not a heretical theology issue, we need to work to be united together. We have to. Second question, is there a place in your life where you have made enemies out of, out of God's family? Is there a place in your life where you made enemies out of God's family? There are people who are bought with the blood of Jesus that, that you hate. Friends, that's something we've got to take before the Lord and repent of. Why? Because God has created us to be one family. We're hating our brother and sister in God's eyes. And the last thing is, is this, and, and this is something that was, that was really hit home for me. It's like when you assess a person, when you meet someone or you see someone, do you, do you consider first what divides you more than what unites you? Do you consider what divides you more than what unites you? God wants us to fight for unity because God has, has put in place ever since Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 that we would all be a part of this family together, united under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So what would it look like if we all started walking in this way? And friends, I think we'd see a, a greater sense of unity in our church. I think we'd see a greater sense of unity even in our communities, that we would be people fighting for unity rather than drifting into division. I think that's so key, that if we're going to be people of unity, we have to fight for it, because if not, we will drift into to, to division. That's just how the culture goes. So friends, today, as you're <clears throat> sitting here, I just want you to spend some time as we close, and I'm done, Ron, if you guys want to come on up or whoever's next, and we got a few things this, uh, after this. But I want you to consider as we, as we lead in a time of worship, like, where is there division in your life towards a brother and sister in Christ? Because gospel people are united. And when we spend some time here in response, just reflecting on that and saying, Lord, would you please remove this from me? Would you remove this ill thought? Would you remove whatever it is that's keeping me from pursuing unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. God, thank you for your kindness towards us in Jesus, that when we were outcasted from the family, that we were condemned under the law, that we were far from you, that you came and got us in Jesus and you brought us close and into your family with the full inheritance. And as we looked around in our family, we saw a bunch of people that didn't look like us, didn't act like us, but they all had one common theme and that's they love Jesus with all their heart, soul, and mind. Lord, would you help us, Holy Spirit, one of the, you, you know, your fruit, part of your fruit is, is self-control. And when we have the discipline and the self-control to fight for unity over division with brothers and sisters in Christ, would we lay our heads down at night believing and thanking you, God, that even thousands and thousands of years ago, when you told Abraham that he would have an offspring that would bless the nations, that we are a part of that blessing, that we are the fulfillment of that promise. And Lord, will we rejoice, would we rest in that fact that we are blessed by you, God, that we are in your family, but also would we fight for unity in the body of Christ that we find ourselves in. Father, we love you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Coggin Church podcast. We exist to make disciples by leading people to connect with God, with others, through service to the world. For more information about Coggin, visit us at www.cogginchurch.org.